Okay. All right. Let's go ahead, um, and we're going to be reading verse 47 to 57, and this is the final section of chapter 11, John 11, 47 to 57. And last week we finished with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It was probably one of the biggest miracles that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. And one reason it was big was not just the fact that someone rose from the dead after four days, but it was the location of where it was done. It was done very close to Jerusalem in a place where, in a setting where there was many witnesses, many people, many friends that had come from Jerusalem to see. And so this miracle had a strong impact. And as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John, we started out in the early chapters where there was an introduction to Jesus. People are kind of, oh, who is this guy? He's brand new. There's a lot of first-time introductions to Jesus. But once we hit this middle part, chapter 5, 6, 7, and then on into 8, 9, and 10, in this section of John, there's no longer introductions, but there begins to be this conflict, this back and forth. And the teachings of Jesus and the work of Jesus become a strong contrast to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. And there is a conflict that gets greater and greater as you work through the book. And partway along the way, people in this enemy group start talking about killing Jesus. But in John 11 is when they really put the concrete plan together to kill Christ. And so if you are able to stand, let's read verse 47 to 57, the final section of John 11. And we will read these verses and pray, and then you can be seated. John 11, beginning in verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What do we do? For this man does many miracles. Thus, if we leave him alone, all men will believe in him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. And he spoke this not of himself. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and stayed there with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was near at hand, and many went out of the country, up to Jerusalem before the Passover, to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus, and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment, that if any man knew where he was, he should reveal it, that they might take him. Let's pray together. Pastor Jeremiah, would you pray for us?
please be seated. You know, sometimes we are blessed that we don't always hear everything that everyone says to us. Sometimes there are those curious souls that wish to know or want to know, and if they think someone's talking about them, you know, they're going to run around and talk to people. I've heard some pretty unique stories of people that are bilingual, and some things that go down when someone doesn't realize that uh, they actually know the language that they're speaking. I have a friend named Bob Reed who's preached here a couple times, and he is very fluent in Spanish, and he actually uh, headed up for many years a Spanish Bible college. So he uh, looks very European in, in appearance, but he is very, very fluent in Spanish. And so he's told me a few stories, of, especially, you know, being in the U.S., and there's people talking in Spanish, and they're saying things that they wouldn't say if they were speaking in English. And then he says, then they look to me, and I speak to them in Spanish. And he says, you can see their face uh, go white or red or whatever the case may be. Um, but sometimes, you know, we think that we would want to know everything that people are saying, but it's actually better that we don't. And in this passage, it's very interesting if you look. Um, this record of what happened here didn't happen in front of the disciples. It didn't happen in front of Jesus. These things happened behind closed doors. And the question then would be, well, how does John know to say what was said there? How does John know? Well, a couple things that, that help us with this. First, a little later in the book, we come to realize that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who are part of this group, come later to face Jesus. They may have been there and told John later what happened. Also, the Bible later tells us that John was known to the family of the high priest. And so John may have had other people Ultimately, we know it is in the scripture by the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says here that these are the enemies of Jesus, and they're forming their plan. They've been opposing Jesus for a long time. But in this passage, they really put together the plan. They're united that he should be put to death. They're agreed that he should be put to death. And there is a movement together to make this happen. This is about a month or maybe two months before getting very close to the final week and indeed next week we pick up the final week of the life of Christ verse 47 we find here the, the plan being put together and in verse 47 we have the plan by his enemies then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said what do we do for this man does many miracles these two groups that we read about in the Bible to us we simply say oh here's a couple of groups that oppose Jesus the chief priests were mostly Sadducees and teachers. The Pharisees were the different group. And so there's actually competing groups who are coming together in opposition to Jesus. And these groups didn't really get along, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the, the big area that they argued about theologically was in Acts 23, if you want to read it later in Acts 23. It says in that passage that the disagreement between them was about resurrection. And the Sadducees said there is no resurrection ever, 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 whereas the Pharisees but they had some other differences as well. And maybe if you're thinking in our time period, a similar concept might be the Muslims have the Shia and Sunni sorts of Muslims. Um, even today, the Jews have the Reformed and the Orthodox, right? And so there are different groups, different genres, maybe we would say different sects of these, um, uh, these religious believers. And so in their context, they're Jewish, and they're gathered together. They're uniting together in rejection of Jesus. 
And can I just point out that there are a number of other points in history where groups that are not really aligned all that much, they've come together in opposition of Jesus, in opposition of the truths of some of the word of God. And so it's interesting how it's, uh, there's, uh, I think the, the colloquial phrase is strange bedfellows sometimes, who unite together in opposition to Christ. So here come the chief priests, here come the Pharisees, they're putting aside all their differences. They're sitting down together and they're saying, what are we going to do? And specifically, they're almost saying, uh, it's almost like they're saying, what, what have we been doing and how is it working out? <laughs> and the answer is, it's not working out very well. And then later in the passage, they really formulate their, their future plan. But, but they're kind of like, what, what are we doing? What, what's going on? This is not working. Why is it not working? What does it say at the end of the verse? For this man does many miracles. What they're saying is what we're doing I mean, you have to really think this through. Uh, the chief, you know, these, these people are people of power and influence, and they're trying to compete with Jesus, and it's not working out for them because Jesus does powerful miracles. I mean, just, just think this through. Um, how would you like to argue with someone and say that you know truth better than someone who can read Jesus on the cross? You know, that is like a, it's like a trump card. There's witnesses going around saying, I saw it, I saw it, and the ultimate witness is who? Lazarus himself. I mean, he's going around and he's saying, I was raised from the dead. And, and these leaders are, are, are coming up short. They're coming up uh, saying that this is not working. There's no one who is able to compete with this. Do you know the sad truth is also this? And if, if you have forgotten, John chapter 3, just flip over there. It's a couple pages to the left. John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, in John 3, verse 2, the Bible says, The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, now notice this next line, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. They knew early on that Jesus was doing miracles, and furthermore, they realized the miracles were connected to God. Now later they try to say, oh, it's from Satan. It's from Satan. But these leaders are united against Jesus. They're rejecting the, the witness of these miracles. They're rejecting the teaching of Jesus. And they cannot compete with miracles. And so they say, what are we going to do? We're going to kill him. We are going to kill this guy. We are going to eliminate him. No longer shall we have to compete with him. He is dead. Now, I want you to look back at verse 45, John eleven forty-five. The Bible says, Then many of the Jews who came to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. Believed in him. And the next verse shows their fear. And their fear is that not only is he doing these things that people believe, the people who are listening, and maybe there are some who are saying something like this. I don't know everything. their influence they can feel it they can see it and they are worried to the nth degree and they say if we leave him alone all men will believe in him and as christians we rejoice when people believe in jesus christ we rejoice and say praise god when someone comes to put their 
And in this passage, every person that believes on Christ, every person that starts listening to Jesus is another person that cannot believe, that cannot believe in him then. And as Christians, let me just remind us, we take joy in every person who trusts in Christ. If they go to a different church, if it's a different denomination, if they never darken the door of their church, we rejoice when any lost man that receives Christ as their Savior. Because that's the center and foundation of the Christian faith. And so here we see them upset. But notice the source of their fear. It's at the end of verse 48. It says this, And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. They are saying, if people keep believing, then the next thing that will happen is the Romans will come. They're going to take away our place. They're going to take away our nation. And that would be just awful. The Jews had spent time outside the land. They had been taken over and called off to Babylon. They had seen what what it felt like, and their history had these moments where they were out of their land, taken over, and everything they held dear was ruined. And in their minds, they're thinking, oh, we don't want that again. We don't want that again. No way, no how. We're going to do whatever it takes to avoid that. We're going to avoid that, aren't we? Let me just quickly talk about our place in our nation. What was their place? Well, you know, it, it could refer to the temple itself, literally geographical place. But I see it more as the idea of their position, their office, if you will. It, they had the position of power over that temple system. Do you remember some of these other stories in the Bible? Maybe you don't, but you've read a couple. But there were some financial shenanigans that went on. People would come to bring an, uh, an offering, and they would have to buy selling offering animals and they had um, inflate you know inflated the price and they would come to transact and they had they had stuck a bunch of coins and there's even Jesus refuting them and he says look you will you will make the way of Jesus a huge and unwelcome place where they enter the temple and you can't defile it and the whole system as Jesus said was corrupt and here they say the Romans will come and take away our place and what took what happened with these Romans and with the Sadducees and the chief high priests is that they had this agreement that Herod had provided the temple, Herod had built the temple for them, and Herod was a Roman and he could do it. And in fact, he had even auctioned off the place of the high priest, and a family would take it and they would have power. And this politics and religious handholding was a dangerous thing, and it still is in any era when when the power of the government and the power of religion or the church or or those types of things are all mixed that in like Sharia law, for instance, in the Muslim context. But there have been Christian applications of this as well. Even in our own nation, if you go back before the Constitution, there was state churches where you had to be a member of the Catholic Church in Maryland to hold up state office in Maryland, right? So this concept of mixing powers, it happens in all sorts of contexts. And here we see the corruption that went on with it. And they're saying, we have to kill Jesus, because if we don't, This power we have will be gone. And Jesus is threatening it, isn't he? Jesus is threatening this corrupt system. And you know, it reminds me of the story of Jeff Sears. Do you remember what he said after he got his
This is where, when we preach the gospel, God changes hearts. When people receive Christ, he begins a new work in hearts, and people are transformed. Here's the opposite, though. Here are the enemies saying, we are not going to let him take, come, have uh, our place. We are not going to listen to him. We're not going to accept him. And this is the rejection. But do you know the saddest part about all of this? Maybe not the saddest, but one of the issues is they said, we don't want him to take away our place. We don't want him to take away our mission. And what happens to that rejection? Rome, large congregation, trying to pour down the temple. They butchered numerous thousands of people who were crucified outside the city. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. We have to protect the system, but they rejected Jesus. We have to hold on to this, and they rejected Jesus. And can I declare to you, and this is good news, Jesus is better than any system or plan or tradition or anything else that you have ever experienced. Jesus is better. And as Christians, we have to model that and live that and have a joy and contentment in Jesus that says, if I have Jesus, but I don't have my backwards. They reject Jesus and just shortly later they lose their place. They lose their nation and there is no more place for them. But notice this next verse 51. And he spoke not of himself. He spoke this not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for that nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. This prophecy of this high priest is, um, we'll go right on to the prophecy, is he says that Jesus is going to die for the nation. When he gives his prophecy, he doesn't know all that he's saying, but he has a meaning behind it, and God has a very different meaning behind it. The high priest is saying this, well, if our nation's at risk, we can kill one person, and we can save the nation. You know, this is a great situation here, really, because only one person has to die, and we can deliver the nation from his influence and from his evil, quote-unquote. And he's saying, let's just sacrifice the one person to save the whole. Is that what happened? Jesus was sacrificed. Does he save? Yes, he does save. And the Bible even says one day all Israel will be saved. And there's coming a day where all the Jews turn to Christ in saving faith all the Jews on the earth at that time. But the high priest is saying, we would rather this one man died so that the whole nation did not perish. Does that word perish kind of ring a bell for any of you? Perish, should not perish. Isn't that phrase, should not perish. Now there's a very famous Bible verse, John 3:16, that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life should not perish. And the high priest is using that same language. He says that the whole nation should not perish. And in a way, God is simply saying he spoke the truth, but not in the way he was meaning it. Because Jesus did die for the nation. He did give his life. And yes, one died so that the whole nation would not have to perish. 
But then verse 52, John adds to it. And he says, And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Not that nation only. This is the good news for you and I. I don't know the ethnic background of everyone in here, but I know we don't have a lot of Jews with us here. We may have one or two. I don't know everyone's background. We may not have any. But Jesus didn't just die for Jewish people, did he? Not for that nation only, but for the children of God scattered all over the world. This matches what Paul says in Ephesians 5, that Christ died for the church. He did die for the church, did he not? He died for all who would believe in him. He also died not only for the church, but he died for the whole world, for those who would never believe in him. Christ died for all the Bible teaches us. And here, this high priest gets up and he says, oh, this is the best thing. If he would just die so that the whole nation would not perish. And John the Apostle says, yes, yes, yes. Let's, I want to look at a couple scriptures that, that teach us this. And let's turn back to John 10, which is just a page to the left. John 10, verse 11. John 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That word for means instead of or on behalf of. And he died for others. When Christ gave his life on the cross, he didn't give it for his own self. He gave it for us. And the, the Bible teaching of the gospel is that Jesus was a perfect sacrifice and he chose intentionally to give up his life so that we could be forgiven. Jesus died for the world. Jesus died for the Jewish people. Jesus died for Gentiles. But Jesus died for John Eichelfeld. And Jesus died for you and you and you. Each person here. Christ died on your behalf. And First uh, Peter 2.24 says this, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live for righteousness, by whose wounds you were, you were healed. Now, that phrase, whose wounds you were healed, is from Isaiah, verse 50, chapter 53, and it says here in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him struck, wounded by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was on him, and with his lashes we are healed. What is this saying? It's saying this. Jesus died for sin. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for me, and Jesus died for you. His death was not an accident. It was intentional. His death was not a tragedy. It was the plan of God. And here we have lost believers, this high priest, saying, oh, it's much better if Jesus would just die and the nation would be preserved. And what happened? Jesus dies. The nation is not preserved in the sense of their temple, in the sense of their position, and in marched the Romans. But Jesus still died. Did he die in vain? Was it a waste? No, it was not a waste. It was not a mistake. Rather, it was God's specific plan. This is what God intended and planned from the beginning. You say, well, isn't that a little strong, uh, Pastor John? I mean, how, how is it that they could have done this bad thing, but God had planned it? Well, I want you to turn, if you can, to Acts chapter 2, which is just a little bit to the right. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It's the next book beside John. Acts 2, 23. 
And in this passage, Peter is preaching, and he explains that what happened with Christ was intentional and purposeful. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, page 1037. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. It says that he was delivered up by God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge. But then it says you by wicked hands have taken and slain. The simple truth is this. Somebody was going to kill Jesus. And if the Jews didn't do it, the Romans would have done it. And if the, it, as it turns out, it was kind of both of them working together. And if the Romans wouldn't have done it, there would have been some other way. But God said Christ will die for the sins of the world. And he sent him into the earth. And he knew the hearts of man. He knew the rejection that would, would follow. And so Christ gives his life for a ransom. You see, our sin deserves a payment. Our sin is not something that is trivial to God. Rather, it's very, very serious to God. And it requires a payment. And the Bible says that Christ paid the payment for our sin. His blood paid the sacrifice. And here's the high priest who deals in sacrifices. Here's the high priest who, who slays that lamb every year at Passover. And he says, oh, it's better for the nation that one would die so the whole nation would not perish. And the Bible now says that whoever will believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And Christ is the fulfillment of this strange prophecy of this high priest. He meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's what the Bible says that the story of Joseph in Genesis 50. Sometimes we as humans, especially when we're outside of God's will, we have intentions that don't line up with God's intentions. But there are numerous times in Scripture where there's evil intentions and God comes along and He uses it for good. This de declaration of the high priest was used for good to point people even to Jesus. You know later in Acts chapter, I think it's in 4 or 5, it says that there were many of the priests that came to believe in Christ. I wonder if they heard the word of the high priest on this day. And then later, as they learned more about Christ and what he did, they, he looked, they started looking at that prophecy very, very differently and seeing those words very, very differently. That they, those Jewish people, would not perish if they would but believe in Christ. Back to John 11. It says, and not for that nation only, verse 52, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. These evil um, enemies are ignoring the Ten Commandments. The morals and the ethics are being cast aside. And in a sense, they're saying, we know the verdict before the trial has even happened. He should die. When there's a rejection of Jesus, and this is a warning to us all, when there's a rejection of Jesus, there's a hardening of the heart. And as that rejection is turned from, and there's an embracing or a listening to Jesus, there's a softening of the heart. But these leaders have rejected Jesus again and again and again. And their heart has become hardened. And now they're going to do something that goes against their own law. This hits home closer than you think. Because, you know, when we have a hardened heart towards someone, and we let that grow and that fester, and we start um, not listening and distancing and being angry and bitter, do you know what happens is soon you'll start doing things and saying things you never imagined you would do. And sometimes you don't even realize it, but, but as time goes by, you start uh, 
you know, as that anger builds and that rejection and that hatred builds, sometimes people will curse that never curse, right? But they'll curse, right? Why? Because that, that rejection is boiled up. Now, that's, that's applied personally. But how much worse is that when it's in relation to God Almighty? And here these leaders have hardened themselves, and now they say, let's just kill him. And they'll turn around and say, now we ought to follow the law of God. Let's just kill him. They're private and they're public, right? And it becomes a, um, a dichotomy between public statements and private statements. And this two-faced existence starts becoming more and more. All right, verse 53. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together to put him to death. Here's the plot. Specifically, they're all working together. Um, again, if there's believers, they're either silent they could be absent or they're remaining silent throughout this. They're not opposing it. We don't know everything that happened in this meet- these meetings. But um, as we go forward then, verse 54, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and stayed there with his disciples. This city of Ephraim is north to northeast. We don't precisely know where. It, some people say 15 miles. It may be even further out. It does give us a reference with the wilderness, but even there, there's some disagreement about which precise place is um, the city of Ephraim. Jesus is pulling away, and remember, this is a month, maybe two at the most, before his crucifixion. Things are all coming together for the final end. The Bible indicates that from here, the Passover would draw nigh. And Jesus would actually travel further north, um, closer up into the area between Galilee and Samaria. And then from there, he would travel down to Jerusalem in a much bigger caravan. So he and his disciples go to the city of Ephraim. It seems like it's just them. And after a week or two weeks or several weeks, they then move up north. And then there's this final passage to Jerusalem. And I'm kind of filling in some details between chapter 11 and chapter 12. And what, what's happening in, in this interim is you have things like the healing of blind Bartimaeus, you have the healing of the ten lepers, you have some of the conversations with Jesus and his disciples. And he begins to tell them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified by the hands of wicked men. And he starts telling people this. And some of them don't want to receive it, they don't want to believe it. They're kind of like, no, no. But there are some people who do believe it. And next week we're going to see one who believes that Jesus would die and that he would be buried. And it's a beautiful story next week. Now, if you want, I'll let you read ahead, okay? You got a Bible. You can read ahead, all right? There's no rules against reading ahead. All right, so now in these final verses, 55, we we see that Jesus withdraws, but then as this Passover comes near, this Passover is the Passover of all Passovers. That's because the true Lamb of God will be yielded up at this Passover. Jesus is in the talk. This miracle and all of his work up to this point, the average people have at least some awareness of Jesus and some interest in Jesus, and some have truly believed. Some maybe have a superficial belief that he's at least a prophet of some sort. And then there's others that are just curious, but there's a lot of talk about Jesus. And here's Jerusalem. The Passover's coming, and people are talking. People are whispering, and uh, they're, they're chatting, and they're saying, what do you think? You think he's going to come? You think he's going to come? Because what we learn in the end of the verse is that the chief priests and Pharisees have given a commandment that if anyone knows where he is, they need to speak up and say it so they can take him. So will Jesus enter into the heart of this 
Judaistic system and go to the temple? Will he go to Jerusalem, this capital city? Will he walk in there? There's a sense in which there's wanted posters, you know? I mean, metaphorically speaking. Wanted posters, you know, dead or alive. We Sooner or later, we'll take care of the dead part. Bring him in, right? Wanted. Jesus Christ at any cost, you know? And here's the power people, and then there's the common people, and there's this swirl around Jerusalem. Is he going to come? Is he going to? Do you think he'll show his face? Guess what? He does come, does he not? And when he comes, he comes in full publicity. We're going to read about that in John 12 as well. But Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and on the way he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to give myself over to the hands of evil men, and I will be crucified. Jesus went to Jerusalem in full courage. You know what I'd be doing if I knew I was about to die? I'd be quaking and shaking and saying, let me run the opposite way. But Jesus was not like me, and he's not like you. He came to do the will of his Father. He came to accomplish the good plan of his Father. And what plan was that? Well, it was the plan that the high priest mentioned, that he would die so that these other people would not perish. That's the plan of the Father. That's the work. And when Christ came to earth, he came to do the will of the Father. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And the most awful thing about the crucifixion of Christ is not that it happened. Because as believers, we are deeply grateful that it happened. <laughs> that it went through because it affects us. The most awful thing about the crucifixion would be that if it were to happen, and it did, and then to be ignored and rejected and declared to be not of interest to me. That would be the worst thing. Because Christ came on purpose, on a mission. He did give his life. And now the Bible says the ball is in your court. Now the choice is to you. Will you look to him and be saved? Will you trust him and receive him for your own heart and your own sin? Or will you say, with these evil people in the passage, I don't want Jesus any part in my life. I don't want to listen to what he has to say. I don't want to consider the miracles he did. I'm going to ignore it and reject it and turn from Jesus. Are you going to join with them? Are you going to set your, your name beside theirs and say, I too go with them? Or will you join your name with ours here at Every Nation Baptist Church and say, He is the Lord Jesus. He did die for my sin. I have received Him as my own personal forgiveness because He gave His life to pay for my sin. The Passover lamb was a pure lamb killed and they would put the lamb's blood on the doorpost. And every Passover, this was done. And when Jesus gave his life on the cross, the Bible says that he had thorns on his head and he had nails in his hands. And when he was taken off the cross, I believe there was blood on the top and on both the sides of that cross. He is the Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice for our sins. And the reason there's no temple today and the reason there's no offering of lambs today is that we have Jesus, our perfect sacrifice. Look to him, find forgiveness, find grace, or write your name with these leaders and say, no way, not ever, not me. I don't want Jesus at all. These are your two choices. Now, many people would say, oh, no, I, like, I want the third choice. I want the middle choice of he's just a nice guy. Oh, but that doesn't work. That doesn't work. He claimed to be the son of God. He raises people from the dead. He's not just another nice guy. He's either who he is or you have to reject him completely. 
This is the message of the gospel. There's good news in this message. Good news for me and good news for you. Christ was given for you. I hope today that you'll receive Him as your Savior. Christian, if you've received Him, I hope that you will have that love and that loyalty that remembers that He has saved you. That you don't forget that. That you don't let that joy and that deep appreciation fade. Um, The day I was saved, I was uh, 12 years old. Some of you were saved later in life. Some of you even younger than 12. The age is a little irrelevant at this point. But the point is this. We've been delivered. We have a Savior, and He's ours. And now, as I go through this life, He's mine. I am His. I can live for Him. I can walk with Him. And He is my joy, right? And when we let Christ be our joy and our center, oh, how life takes on a different purpose, a different meaning. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. We will uh, sing a song in just a moment. This really is our response time, and it's a chance for you to respond in your own heart to what God has spoken to you about today. Maybe you are at a decision point, and you're having to decide if you will let Jesus speak and that you'll listen and you'll consider what he says. Or maybe you're at that point in life where you're thinking about